Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness, and we thank you for your word, and we ask, Lord, that you would just have your way with us now, Lord, and settle our hearts, and just help us to hear from you by your Holy Spirit, please, in Jesus' name, amen. Turn, if you would, to uh, Jeremiah chapter 49. And before we get started, I do want to apologize terribly. I hope everybody's had a good week this week because it did come to my attention a couple days ago that last week at the end I told you to have an awesome week as opposed to an awesome, awesome week. And so some of you only had an awesome week last week, and I deeply apologize for that. So if I forget that and neglect it at the end here, please remind me that uh, you all all deserve an awesome, awesome week. Um, So make sure we don't miss that. Jeremiah chapter 49 and 50 uh, today, Lord willing. Uh, Lord willing, we'll finish Jeremiah next week, and then we go into Lamentations. And uh, if, you're, if you're new in the last six months since we started Jeremiah, what we're doing is we're doing an Old Testament chunk and then a New Testament chunk and kind of marching through, and we're going to wind up hopefully in Malachi and Revelation And um, so after Jeremiah and Lamentations, we're going to go to uh, first, maybe first and second Thessalonians, I'm not sure yet. But that brings to mind a little bit, some have asked, um, you know, during the events that we're finding ourselves in uh, on a world stage right now, am I going to pause and do like a a section on, um, you know, end times events or, you know, something like that. And the answer to that is, well, after Jeremiah, we're going to go to Lamentations. After, after Jeremiah and Lamentations, we're going to go to Thessalonians, which is all about that. And then from there, we're going to go back to Ezekiel. So I think it's going to take care of itself, as the Lord always in his, um, in his grace and mercy always teaches us what we need to know when we need to know it. And so um, anyway, so that'll, that'll be that. I want to highlight this map here just for a second. And let me just, again, as I'm kind of doing some housekeeping things. Some scripture, when we go through it and we teach it, we talk about it, we're like, makes you just want to say, yes, right? And some scripture, you talk through it, and it's, it, it's hard. It's hard to kind of work through it, and it's hard to, uh, to hear some of these things, and, and it's a little bit of work. Okay, and I'm just going to tell you straight up, these chapters today are a little bit of work. But it just reminds me of the fact that if I sat up here every week and gave a teaching on Ephesians, you know, or John chapter 3 or something like that, we'd find ourselves, I think, ill-equipped for the challenges of this life. And so, again, if nothing else, uh, the fact that these chapters we're talking about today is hard, uh, that's just a reminder that we need the whole counsel of God. We need, we need all the ammo God will throw at us. And so, um, so here we are. So today, we find, we find ourselves this last section of Jeremiah from uh, chapters um, really 46 to 51. Our judgments, you know, prior to that, God was talking about the nation of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, all the Jewish people, and now we're talking about some of the the Gentile nations that are around uh, uh, Israel and Judah, and God is pronouncing judgment on those. And and so we're going to read through several of those uh, today, and I just wanted, for, for sake of kind of 
big picture, I thought it'd be worthwhile to review sort of who, who these neighboring nations are and where they come from. Is that fair? Yes. Okay. So you have here um, uh, the nation of Judah and the nation of Israel, and you see Israel goes to the east side of the Jordan River just a little bit, and all of that tan right there is collectively what we might call Israel. Now, in the days of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, the nation was divided, and there was a northern kingdom of Israel, which included this part, and there was a southern kingdom of Judah. By the time of Jeremiah, that Jeremiah comes along, the Assyrians have conquered the nation of Israel, and the kingdom of Judah remained. So the last of the remnants, uh, remnants of the Jewish people are in, uh, in Judah there in the south, and you notice that Jerusalem is their, uh, their capital. The Babylonians uh, carried off the, uh, the nation of Judah captive to Babylon. We'll talk about that a little bit today. And, um, and so the time period we're talking about, basically, the Babylonians are wiping out everybody. Okay, Babylonians are just dominating and they're wiping out everybody. So we see some of these historical uh, nations. First of all, I want to highlight, you recall the Jewish people are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? And so think of it like that. Let's just say we'll start with Abraham. Abraham had a nephew named, named Lot, who when he uh, escaped the, the judgment of God at Sodom and Gomorrah, he wound up having two sons, and those two sons were named Moab and Ammon, okay? And the descendants of the Moabites are, or the descendants of Moab became the kingdom of Moab. We call them the Moabites. And the descendants of Ammon were called the kingdom of uh, Ammon, the Ammonites. Fair enough? So that's where you got the Moabites and the Ammonites. Now, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had a twin brother named Esau. Esau became the father of the Edomites. So they're down here. So it's helpful, I think, if um, we think of the area to the east of the, of the Jordan River as kind of marching south to north, Edomites, Moabites, Ammonites, okay? And then, uh, just for completeness, there's the area of Damascus. Uh, that, that would, well, the city is Damascus. This is kind of, uh, there's the city of Damascus. This would be the Syrians, Okay, not to be confused with the Assyrians. This is just a time, this map was at a time when the Assyrian Empire was dominant. Um, but it was a good map, and I liked the colors, so I took this one. So, uh, so think Syria up here, the capital is Damascus, and um, again, Babylon is coming from the east and from the north, and they're going to kind of come down and conquer. And you may recall a couple weeks ago, I said, you know, there seemed to be a lot of battle that kind of goes in this kind of pattern. Egypt, Israel, Assyria, and Babylon, and all kind of goes in this pattern, okay? So you think about that, and you might think out over here is just desert, right? So if there's a lot of warfare going on out here and a lot of judgment, you might be tempted to think, well, let's just come out here and hang out over in the desert because that's safe and secure and comfortable, right? So we'll talk about that a little bit today too. Is that fair? So we're going to kind of talk about all these different, uh, well, not all of them, but a lot of these different uh, people groups. And so that's just kind of where they're at geographically and where they come from um, historically. All right. All right, so 
Again, as we talk about these nations, uh, we need to realize that the prophecy is against these nations because they worshiped idols. They were full of pride um, for various reasons. Um, they were all ultimately conquered by Babylon, and then in chapter uh, 50, we'll talk about that Babylon itself was then conquered. And so pride against God uh, is bad for any nation. But it's important that we keep in, our, in the forefront of our minds also that God deals with us as individuals. Now, this is one of these mysteries of God that we can't fully really um, wrap our heads around because we're humans, but God's grace is always available to every human being that's ever lived on planet Earth, okay? God's grace is always available, I believe, according to Scripture. It says, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 3, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance, okay? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever, not just the select few, not just the lucky ones that are, that are you know, whatever, but whosoever. That grace is available to whosoever. Now, somehow in God's sovereignty, he knew, he knew who they would be. That's again beyond our brains, right? But for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That grace is available to any individual. Now, at the same time, God deals with nations, okay? And nations' leaders, honestly. And so, you know, God's grace is available to a Babylonian citizen, while yet God deals with the nation of Babylon. Fair enough? Okay, that's as good as I can explain it, which is pretty inadequate, okay? Because we're humans. Um, but anyway, that's where we're at. Chapter 49. We start, uh, the verse, first section is a section about the Ammonites. You remember Ammon was the son of Lot, uh, that is the nephew of Abraham. And the Ammonites were constant enemies of the Jews. And so um, Jeremiah starts out against the Ammonites. Thus says the Lord, has Israel no sons? Has he no heir? Why then does Milcom inherit Gad and his people dwell in his cities? Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will cause to be heard an alarm of war in Rabah of the Ammonites. It shall be a desolate mound and her villages shall be burned with fire. Then Israel shall take possession of his inheritance, says the Lord. And so just for starting out, I want to show you this again, if you'll bear with me. Ammon is this area here. Gad, you recall when the Israelites came up out of the, out of the desert, uh, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half of Manasseh settled on the east side of the Jordan. So one of the tribes here we're talking about is Gad. That's a part of Israel. And uh, at the time of this writing, the Assyrians had taken, had taken all of this land and are taken captive here. And so Gad was kind of left as kind of a, uh, a land that could be scavenged. And so these Ammonites were sort of scavengers of this land of Gad. Like, uh, the Israelites will never come back, right? So let's just kind of take over Gad. And so that's what they did. And Milcom here as a reference is another name for Molech, which you may have heard uh, mentioned, was, was sort of their uh, false idol. And so that's the story. Uh, and I'm not going to be flashing this thing off and on again, so that's the end of that map, okay? If you want the map back. Google it. Um, 
Milcom, this guy, uh, this, this false deity they worshipped, one of the things about Milcom, Moloch, was that, and I, I want to be sensitive to all ages here, but the worship of Molech involved child sacrifice. And God was very serious about that. And as you read sort of the tone of God throughout, particularly the Old Testament, and you, you read things like, you know, and, and God, you know, didn't really like what, they did, what the Jewish people did when they adopted the idol worship of their neighbors. And, and you'll see references, you know, occasionally it says, and they even sacrificed their children to Molech. Like, in a sense, like, that was, that was the emphatic part of the description. Like, it got so bad. Their, their idolatry got so bad that they sacrificed to Molech. And I want us to see that that was, um, that was really what brought judgment to the Ammonites. Uh, they scavenged the land of Gad, kind of assuming God would never come back, the Israelites would never come back, and, uh, and particularly they thought Milcom, Molech, was going to save them, and the reality is uh, he didn't. And so, um, but I just want to, and as I'm thinking about, you know, we've got a walk for life coming up, the worship of Molech, child sacrifice, still goes on today, does it not? Now, we're much more civilized in, in our worship of Molech. But can I just say this? Make no mistake about it. Abortion in America today is the worship of Molech. It's child sacrifice to, for convenience. And so we should, um, we should be careful about the euphemisms that the, that the, that the cultural narr <clears throat> narrative would like to pass our way. We'll, call, we'll say things like choice. We'll say things like women's health. We'll say things like my rights. Those all sound kind of like things that we can talk about, right? I think of it as the worship of Molech. Because was Molech a god? No. Molech was their cultural man-made thing that really had a demon behind it, right? The demon of sort of, you know, that would cause them to child sacrifice. And I believe it's the same demon today. And so... Uh, honestly, we need to call it for what it is. Now, having said that, again, now we're talking about uh, back to the individual, right? God's grace can cover anything. God's grace can cover anything. And if you've been affected by that, or you know somebody that's been affected by that, God's grace heals way better than anything. And so that, that healing, that grace is available. But as far as us as... Um, people recognizing the truth of Scripture, uh, God is very serious about child sacrifice. He always has been, and He always will be. Verse 2, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will cause to be heard an alarm of war in Reba of the Ammonites. That's just an area. We're going to read lots of these um, names that are just like 
cities, regions, uh, descriptions within those territories. It shall be a desolate mound, and her villages shall be burned with fire. Then Israel shall take possession of his inheritance, says the Lord. And so, you know, the Israelites uh, are going to come back. It says, this is an example of a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment, which we often see in prophecy. The near fulfillment is the Ammonites are going to be destroyed, which happened by the Babylonians. The far fulfillment is that Israel will resettle that land, which they haven't done yet, and that'll happen uh, in, the, uh, in the end times during the millennium. Wail, O Heshbon, for Ai is plundered. Cry, you daughters of Rabbah. Gird yourself with sackcloth. Lament and run to and fro by the walls. For Milcom shall go into captivity with his priests and his princes together. So, you know, your, your destruction is coming, and Milcom is going to be no help in that day. So really, any false idol that we worship, you know, we all have our own little false idols, right? Any false idol that we worship is going to be worthless during times of trouble. And that's really oftentimes the only time we realize how worthless uh, any kind of false security is. Behold, I will bring fear upon you, says the Lord God of hosts, from all those who are around you. You shall be driven out, everyone headlong, and no one will gather... those who wander off. But afterward, I will bring back the captives of the people of Ammon, says the Lord. So again, we're going to see, we've been talking about this last few weeks. God is so often in these passages referred to as the Lord God of hosts. He's the God over the angelic world. He's the God that, that moves nations. He's the God that moves empires. He's the God that's, that's, that's dealing with a bigger picture than just me and my problems right? He's the Lord God of hosts, and we see him referenced this way uh, through, these, uh, through these chapters. Notice also, the captives afterward, I will bring back the captives of the people of Ammon. So another beautiful picture of God's grace um, uh, that at one time they will resettle uh, in the millennial kingdom, the Ammonites, uh, the remnant of the Ammonites, and keep in mind God has a heart for all people. So that's the Ammonites. Fair enough? You want to hear about the Edomites? Okay. If you don't want to hear about the Edomites, are you glad that I mentioned at the beginning that this is work? Okay, so Edom, you recall, were the descendants of Esau. Esau, I think it's no, no coincidence that Esau the man became the father of the Edomites because some of the characteristics we see in Esau the man we see represented in the character of the Edomites. Does that make sense? The traits we saw in Esau are the, are the traits that we see throughout Scripture of the Edomites. So what do we see in Esau? Esau was a guy, remember, uh, in the ancient world, there was always the birthright and the blessing, right? So if I were a father of a family, right, the firstborn uh, male would have the, uh, the birthright. That is, it was his job to carry on sort of the family name, particularly from a spiritual context. Does that make sense? And so it was his job to sort of um, not be, you know, weirdly authoritative or anything like that, but just to carry the responsibility, carry the responsibility of what it means to be uh, a child of that family, what the next generation is going to do. They're going to carry on uh, the godly legacy that's been established in prior generations. And that's how it ought to work, right? We see that throughout the Old Testament. So the birthright was that responsibility. The blessing was basically the provision to do that, right? So if I give, let's say I give, uh, Nate's my oldest son, right? So if I give Nate the job, 
to carry on responsibilities, right, it would make sense that he also gets the provision to do that, right? If I say, you know, and that's how we set up our, you know, that's how people today set up their, their will and their, you know, last wishes or whatever like that. There's a, there's a thing they want to see happen, right? But it also takes some provision to make that happen. Does that make sense? So what do you have with Esau? Esau was, because he was firstborn, twin, means he came out a few seconds or minutes before. We don't know the exact timing of it. Um, Esau comes out first. He's the firstborn. He gets entitled to the birthright and the blessing. And so one day he's out hunting. He's hungry, right? He comes in. He's hungry. You know the story. His brother Jacob is making stew. His brother Jacob's pretty shifty character. I kind of like Jacob in a carnal sort of way. Um, but anyway, Jacob's kind of a uh, shifty character, and Esau's hungry. And he says, hey, give me that stew. And he's like, it's my stew. Well, give me that stew. Well, what do you give me for it? I don't care. I'm hungry. Right? Completely motivated by his flesh. Right? Completely motivated by his flesh. Jacob says, all right, sell me your birthright. I'll give you that stew. What's Esau do? Birthright, schmirthright. I don't care. I'm hungry. Right? And, and the Bible says, it's, it's, honestly, these are chilling words. Thus Esau despised his birthright. He didn't care about spiritual things. All he cared about was, I'm hungry. Right? Do we get that way sometimes? Does our hunger for whatever, our, whatever appetite we're talking about, supersedes our desire to be spiritual and godly and obey the Lord and do what's right, right? Do what's right seems overrated sometimes in the face of, I'm hungry now, right? Well, that's Esau. Well, then comes along a little bit later, right? He passed on the birthright, but he still thought, that's all right, because I'm going to get the provision, right? I don't want the responsibility. I just want the goods, right? So you know the story, right? Jacob says, uh, uh, Jacob deceives his dad and tricks him, and that shouldn't be approved either. But anyway, it's a long story. It's a long, complicated story. Long story short, Esau gets weaseled out of, his out of the blessing. Now, what does he do? He flips out. He goes crazy. He flips out. And so Esau is a picture of a guy who doesn't care about spiritual things, but then flips out when he doesn't get the blessing. How often do we in our lives demand our own way and then flip out when it doesn't go so well? We demand our own way. We say, God, I know you gave me every, every fruit to eat in this garden, but I want that one. And then you eat that fruit, things don't go so well, and you flip out. I mean, it's a pretty predictable pattern of human behavior, is it not? Let me just call it for what it is. Let's, first of all, do the right thing. And let's, first of all, care more about the right thing than about our appetite. And then secondly, if we happen to have a little sowing and reaping going on in our lives, and if we happen to reap what we sow, just take it. 
Just take it. Just accept it. And don't flip out. Hebrews, further on in the Bible, describes Esau as a guy that has a root of bitterness. So what happens? What happens because he has no concern for spiritual things and then he flips out about his birthright? He becomes bitter. Can I tell you this is the next logical sequence of what happens? Esau becomes a bitter man. And that describes his relationship with the Jews. So, you don't care about spiritual things? First, it, 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 and I'm telling you, I know I'm, I know I'm camping out on this concept a little bit, but I think I need to. I'm honestly heavy-hearted about this right now. This is what I see too often amongst God's people, candidly. I see really a lack of concern for spiritual things. Can I just say that? Can I call it? Can I call it? And I don't want to, I don't, please, I'm not trying to lay a trip or anything like this. I'm just trying to wake us up. And ultimately knowing that the Holy Spirit's the only one that can wake you up. So I can't wake anybody up. But I believe I have this responsibility to teach the Word of God. And so I'll do it. And so as these things come up, and as the, the Lord, I believe, lays them on my heart, I believe this is heavy on my heart right now. I believe we have a pattern too often. And again, I'm not saying, you know, if you're cruising with the Lord, that's awesome. Just be on the alert. That's all i got to say. But if you're not and you need to wake up, can I just encourage us as graciously as I can, wake up? Because here's what happens. Step one, my appetite's kind of rise in their awareness. Step two, I really don't care about that birthright stuff. Really? Like what's, what's being spiritual and doing the right thing and being faithful have to do with my security, my comfort, my desires, my lusts, Right? Because you know what I think I can do? I think I can manage those things. And I think I can kind of put those things on hold for a minute. I think I can put spiritual things on hold for a minute while I bait my appetites. And I think I'll get away with it a little bit because, you know, I can still go to church once in a while and I'll still be all right and I'll still kind of, and I'll still, you know, I think I can navigate this thing a little bit. Next thing you know, we're kind of negotiating with God. Next thing you know, we really just don't care. Next thing you know, there's a little bit of sowing and reaping that goes on. Because God likes to get our attention sometimes. And so maybe there's a little bit of consequence over the fact that we've made some lousy decisions. Well, now you got my attention. And so now I'm playing out. i got to deal with these consequences of these lousy decisions and this spiritual complacency that's plagued me for a long time. And now I'm face-to-face -face with the consequences. And even at that point, I could choose to repent, but maybe I don't. And so what happens is my heart gets a little bit kind of calloused, a little bit hard. The Bible calls it bitterness. 
And in Hebrews, it's described as a root of bitterness. Where's the root at? Where's the root at in a tree? Again, botany students in the room? That's too heavy. You can't even answer a basic botany question. Sorry. Okay. Where's the root? Underground. Do you see it? No. Get it? The bitterness just kind of pops up every now and then. But really, you just don't see it. So what happened? You started out with a little bit of complacency and a desire for other things, right? Just like Jesus said in the parable of the sowers, right? The desire for the things of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, chokes out the Word of God. Like reading the Bible? That's work. You just don't care. You just don't care because it's not a priority. You see this? And the next thing you know, if you're not careful, if there's not a turnaround, come to Jesus, repentance, and I'm not talking about a modification, a little, let's see how we can manage this a little bit better, and, you know, maybe we can get a prescription or, a, or something to kind of make the pain go away. If, you're not, if there's not full-blown, come to Jesus, repentance, the cycle continues. Maybe some good days and bad days, but ultimately, bitterness. That's Esau. Turn to the right, if you would, to Obadiah. It's in the Minor Prophets. Obadiah, right before Jonah, right after Amos. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Everybody there? Obadiah is a book that was written specifically to the Edomites. Here's how, they, here's how the Edomites viewed the Israelites. Look at verse 10. For violence against your brother Jacob... Shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. So Obadiah here is telling the Edomites, hey, you know when the Babylonians came in and took over Judah? You celebrated with them. You helped them out. Why? Because you were bitter. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should, have not, you should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. Can I tell you, if you ever wonder, am I a bitter person? Okay. Am I a bitter person about such and so situation or about such and so person? Here's a little litmus test for you. When something bad happens to them, do you kind of enjoy it a little bit? Good. 
Good. Out of, the children, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained praise. When, when bad stuff happens to the guy that wronged you, do you kind of enjoy it a little bit? Let me just tell you, if the answer is yes in any way, then you're bitter. And you need to call it for what it is. So these are the Edomites. Verse 7. Against Edom, thus says the Lord of hosts, is wisdom no more in Teman? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom vanished? Flee, turn back, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Dedan, for I will bring the calamity of Esau upon him, the time that I will punish him. And so Edom was known for its wisdom, for their wisdom, but that wisdom won't deliver you in days of destruction. Wisdom won't deliver you from bitterness. If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleaning grapes? If thieves by night, would they not destroy until, until they have enough? But I've made Esau bare. I've uncovered his secret places, and he shall not be able to hide himself. His descendants are plundered, his brethren and his neighbors, and he is no more. Leave the fatherless children. I will preserve them alive, and let your widows trust in me. So a grape gather, gatherer or a thief would probably leave a little bit of leftovers, but God's going to destroy these people so much that there's, uh, there's not going to be any leftovers. For thus says the Lord, Behold, those whose judgment was not to drink the, of the cup have assuredly drunk. And are you the one who will altogether go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, but you shall surely drink of it. For I have sworn by myself, says the Lord, that Bozrah shall become a desolation, a reproach, a waste, and a curse, and all its cities shall be perpetual wastes. I have heard the message from the Lord, and an ambassador has been sent to the nations. Gather together, come against her, and rise up to battle. For indeed I will make you small among nations, despised among men. Your fierceness has deceived you, the pride of your heart. O oh, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, who hold the height of the hill, though you make your nest as high as the eagle, I will bring you down from there, says the Lord. So you can make your nest up as high as the eagle, but that's not going to protect you. They thought they were fierce. They thought they were safe. They thought they were preserved from God's judgment. But nobody is. Nobody is outside of Jesus Christ. Edom shall be an astonishment. Everyone who goes by it will be astonished and will hiss at all its plagues, as in the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah all their, and their neighbors, says the Lord. Look at this. No one shall remain there, verse 18, nor shall a son of man dwell in it. So Edom's going to be desolate. And notice, there's interesting, you know, I read about the Ammonites, the captive of Ammon, of people of Ammon will return, says the Lord. There's some hope for these other nations in the millennial kingdom. That hope's not given to, for uh, the nation of Edom. Edom will be destroyed definitively. Verse 19, but he shall come up like a lion from the floodplain of the Jordan against the dwelling place of the strong, but I will suddenly make him run away from her. And who is a chosen man that I may appoint over her? For who is like me? Who will arraign me? And who is that shepherd who will withstand me? Therefore, hear the counsel of the Lord that he has taken against Edom and his purposes that he has proposed against the inhabitants of Teman. Surely the least of the flock shall draw them out. Surely he shall make, them, make their dwelling places desolate with them. The earth shakes at the noise of their fall. At the cry, its noise is heard at the Red Sea. Behold, he shall come up and fly like an eagle and spread his wings over Bozrah, the heart of the mighty men of Edom. In that day shall be like a heart of a woman in birth pangs. 
So the heart of the mighty men in Edom, the, the strongest guys in Edom, this, the mightiest, mightiest soldiers, I kind of like this, this word picture. They're going to be like a woman delivering a child. Now, ladies, if you're in the middle of labor, you feel like, man, I want to go out and pick a good fight with somebody right now, right? Maybe the nurse, <laughs> right? But, you know, you don't have any energy for anything else, right? That's the picture that, that he's describing here. Verse 23, uh, this is about uh, 23 to 27, is about Damascus, again, which is the capital of Syria, not Assyria, but Syria, who were um, uh, Israel's enemies primarily during the days of the kings. Against Damascus, Hamath and Arpad are ashamed, for they have heard bad news. They are faint-hearted. There is trouble on the sea. It cannot be quiet. Damascus has grown feeble. She turns to flee, and fear has seized her. Anguish and sorrows have taken her like a woman in labor. Again, the same image. Why is the city of praise not deserted, the city of my joy? Therefore, her young men shall fall in her streets, and all the men of war shall be cut off in that day, says the Lord of hosts. I will kindle a fire in the wall of Damascus, and it shall consume the palaces of Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad was one of their kings. So the prophecy here is for fear, sorrow, uh, for desertion, though some people would stay there, and uh, Damascus remains uh, inhabited even, even today. Verse 28 to 33 are about Kedar and Hazor. Now, these are two desert people groups. You remember when I showed you on the map, there was the desert people groups on the right, right? They kind of thought that they were safe and secure. Kedar uh, was descended from Ishmael. Remember, Abraham's first child uh, was Ishmael, uh, not the child of promise. And um, from his descendants was this group of people uh, of Kedar. And then Hatzor, there's a city in Israel, and I believe the northern kingdom that was Hatzor. This is not to be confused with that. This is a separate people group. They were nomadic Arab nations who honestly thought they were safe, and sure enough, they were conquered by Babylon in 598 B.C. And so, um, verse 28, against Kedar and against the kingdom of Hazor, which Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, shall strike. Thus says the Lord, arise, go up to Kedar, and devastate the men of the east, their gates, their tents, and their flocks. They shall take away, they shall take for themselves their curtains, all their vessels and their camels, and they shall cry out to them, Fear is on every side. Flee, get far away. Dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Hazor, says the Lord. For Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has taken counsel against you and has conceived a plan against you. Arise, go up to a wealthy nation that dwells securely, says the Lord. Anybody know any wealthy nations that dwell securely today? Anybody know any wealthy nations that dwell securely? Again, what's this... Esau pattern start with starts with a little complacency and a lack of concern about spiritual things, right? What's one of the things that Jesus talked about there in the parable of the sower? The, the, the deceitfulness of riches and the affairs of this life choke out the fruitfulness of the word, right? Arise, go up to that wealthy nation that dwells securely, says the Lord, which has neither gates nor bars dwelling alone. You know, the fact that we're wealthy and secure as a nation should cause us, from a biblical standpoint, more concern than it does security, right? It should cause us more concern than it does security. 
Their camels shall be for booty, and their multitude of their cattle for plunder. I will scatter to all winds those in the farthest corners, and I will bring their calamity from all its sides, says the Lord. Hotsor shall be a dwelling for jackals, a desolation forever. No one shall reside there, nor son of man dwell in it. So that's, the, that's those guys. Verse 34, the Elamites. Uh, now, the Elamites were a group of people who became part of the Persian Empire. Okay, now we've got to do a little bit of a card shuffle here for a second. Okay, everybody we've talked about so far has been destroyed by the Babylonians, uh, or, or will be, you know, at the time of this writing. Well, Babylon itself is going to get conquered by the Persians, the, the Medes and Persians. Okay, well, this group from Elam, uh, the Elamites, they become part of the Persians. So they're going to actually be one of the ones that are going to be conquered. But uh, it's, this is detailed out in Daniel's prophecy. Guess what happens to the, to the Persians? Anybody want to guess? Well, they live happily ever after to this day. No, they get conquered by Alexander the Great and the Greeks, right? So, yeah. Being on top just makes you vulnerable is what it does. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah, the prophet against Elam in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, saying, so that's the group who's Elam. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will break the bow of Elam, the foremost of their might. And so, you know, the Elamites uh, were famous as archers, but God's going to break their bow. Against Elam, I will bring the four winds from the four quarters of heaven and scatter them toward all those winds. They shall, there shall be no nations where the outcasts of Elam will not go. And so, you know, the Elamites, um, God's bringing in a storm. Like, have you ever seen, stood up on maybe a high, high plateau or a plain where a storm's coming in? You ever been in one of those where, where you can kind of, you can, you can like literally see the storm and you're like, whoa, there's a storm coming out of the west right? Well, imagine that feeling if it was coming from all sides, right? He says, I'm going to, uh, against Elam, I'm going to bring the four winds from the four quarters of heaven. And oh, by the way, I'm going to scatter them in the same way toward all those winds. Uh, so destruction is coming, even though they feel like they're secure over there in the desert. For I will cause Elam to be dismayed before their enemies, and before those who seek their life, I will bring disaster upon them. My fierce anger, says the Lord, and I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. I will set up my throne in Elam, and will destroy from there the king and the princes, says the Lord. So destruction's coming upon Elam. But it shall come to pass in the latter days, I will bring back the captives of Elam, says the Lord. So again, in God's grace, in the millennium, there's hope for the descendants of the Elamites. Anybody besides me look ahead and notice how many verses are in chapter 50? Anybody besides me look at the time? I want to save chapter 50. Is that all right? About okay with that? Usually don't get a revolt when I ask questions like this. <laughs> you know, uh, chapter 50 and 51 uh, are both about Babylon. And so I think Babylon itself deserves uh, probably fair treatment. But turn over to the left for a minute to Psalm 2. 
My brain keeps coming back to this lately as we read the news. So you got all these nations, right? You got the Edomites, you got the Ammonites, you got the Elamites, you got all the other ites, you got every ite imaginable in the Bible. You got the Babylonians. The Babylonians are going to come conquer them. And when the Babylonians come conquer them, they're going to think that, that they're the king of the hill. And sure enough, they're the king of the hill for a little bit of time. And then they're going to be comfortable and fat and sassy just like everybody else. And next thing you know, the Persians are going to come in and wipe them out. And you see this whole thing, right? And what do we see today? Right? See, nation rise against nation. Jesus told us this is coming. Nation's going to rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And everybody thinks that they're, you know, on top and they're going to be the dominant thing. Psalm 2, look at this. Why do the nations rage? Now, there's a great question. Why do the nations rage? And the people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth, they set themselves up, and the rulers take counsel together, not against each other necessarily, but against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Can I tell you this? There is no kingdom on earth that's higher than Jesus Christ. There never has been and there never will be. And what's fascinating is all along the way there's been that nation that thinks that they're going to do it, right? And I'll talk about this more next week since you gave me more time for next week. It started at the, it started at the Tower of Babel, right? What is the Tower of Babel? A little preview for next week. What is the Tower of Babel? Tower of Babel is where we, a bunch of us build up this tower, and by golly, we're going we're gonna to reach the heavens. Well, if you reach the heavens, what, do, what don't you need if you can reach the heavens on your own? You don't need God. And so ever since the Tower of Babel, we've got nations that don't think they need God, and they can, if they just conquer enough victims then they won't need God. And really, it's not, it's not Russia against Ukraine. I hope I can say this out loud. I believe it's every nation in history that's tried to be some kind of exerter of force against God. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? James says, where, where do wars and fights come from? Whether it's two big nations or whether it's a husband and a wife. It comes from your selfishness, James tells us. That's the reality. God has set his king, Jesus, on the throne of the world. He's the Lord of hosts of the world. And he's the king of us individually. Please be careful about bitterness. Please be careful about complacency. Please be careful about anything that takes our focus, our devotion, our faithfulness away from the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I tell you that not to yell at you. I tell you that out of 
concern and compassion and a desire that each of us would live abundantly. Because frankly, serving the Lord, serving the Lord full throttle is the formula for abundant life. You can try an alternative if you want. But I'd recommend you don't. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you're so good to us. Thank you that you reign supreme over all the kingdoms of the earth, past, present, and future. Thank you that we can look forward to the day when you will come and set foot on this earth and establish your kingdom here on earth. And Lord, we look, for that day, look forward to that day when we don't have to worry about what nation is raging against another nation. When we'll have tremendous clarity about who's in control, we'll know it'll be you. But Lord, even today, we know that it's you. And we thank you for that. We thank you for being king of the world. Thank you for being Lord of hosts. Thank you for being Lord of our lives. Please help us, Lord, to live accordingly for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome, awesome week.